Welcome to this week's edition of the NinersNation.com Better Rivals Podcast. My name is Oscar. My name is David. And this week, Terrell Owens is a Hall of Famer. He finally made it in. Pierre Garçon is officially using Death Row Records references to recruit Malcolm Butler. And Cassius Marsh is officially signed. Things are happening this week. Lots of 49ers related things. But this is going to be the first episode in our free agent recap. We're going to get to what that means for the positions that we're going to be talking about over the course of the next few weeks, as well as how we're going to evaluate them. But first, football season's officially over. Super Bowl's done. Let's do a quick Super Bowl recap. Rapid fire. Let's go, David. Number one, what's your uh, one-sentence take on the Super Bowl? Go. That was better than expected. All right. Fair point. Uh, yeah, mine was, <laughs> holy shit. Yeah. That was awesome. Uh Probably one of the better Super Bowls I can remember. I, I find that Super Bowl to have been better than the the twenty eight three Super Bowl, the Malcolm Butler Super Bowl. It was just it was a damn fine game. It was one of the rare ones that was fun from start to finish, pretty exactly. much. Like the, there was and a, and a lot of it I think it was there was so much offense in that game. Yeah. And like I love watching offense football to be honest. I think it was so, it was yeah. Kevin Clark who said that we all love the idea of good defensive games, but we don't actually like watching them. Yeah, they're not as fun. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's like Chris Brown compared it to, like, this is basically a Big 12 game. Yeah, I like the, uh, I like the Big 12. It's like, Hook them. Yep. All right, so what was the best moment? Oh, man. Um, I mean, the end is a little hazy, you know. There were, there were, there were many beers involved. I think, the, I mean, probably the best moment had to be, uh, I think, the strip sack. I think the, the strip sack of Brady... Um, which actually, so looking at, I won't get too far into that because looking at the the next thing that we have on tap here, um, it kind of runs counter to what I think is the biggest surprise. But I mean, that was, uh, yeah, I mean, that was such a huge moment, um, and, and it was it was awesome to watch. So for me, the best moment was Philly special, just the absolute, yeah. the absolute I mean, aggression for Doug Peterson to sit there and say, "I'm not going to win this game by like kicking field goals and not going for it on fourth and one." I mean, every by every statistical measure at the one yard line, you go for it on fourth and one because the worst thing that happens is you don't get the touchdown, but then you force that team to drive 99 yards. You're more, the likelihood of them scoring is much, much lower. You get the ball back and you get in positive field position. So, and, and not only to just go for it, but to call a pass play to (laughs) fucking Nick Foles. I mean, that's like the, I I was texting a friend and he was like, how does Doug Peterson walk around with stones that big? And I was like, a wheelbarrow. It's just a wheelbarrow. He walks I mean, around with a, a right wheelbarrow. With, with Big Dick Nick, I mean. I mean, it's it was just, it's. I mean, they're laying it all over the table, is what we're saying. <laughs> Philadelphia is just swinging it everywhere. Uh, uh, so if that's the best moment, what was the biggest surprise? So I think the biggest surprise to me was that um, Philadelphia got the pressure that they needed to. So they ended up at exactly 40% pressure rate, which has kind of been the key mark for Brady and Super Bowls. The the games yeah. that they've lost in the Super Bowl, both of them um, had over percent 40, had over 40%, over 40% pressure yeah. rate. Um, and it really didn't matter outside. I mean, the strip sack was the one play where they really, you know, got to him and made something happen. Um, otherwise he handled the pressure great and, and, you know, continued to be, I mean, we've mentioned it kind of offhand throughout the entire year, how great he's been under pressure. Um, and that held true despite being under, uh, under pressure as often as he was there. So I think if you would have told yeah. me before the game, right, that they get 40% pressure rate, like that's the, that's the thing that you're thinking, okay, this is how they slow down yep. the, the offense. And it, it wasn't the case. So for me, the biggest surprise was that 
uh, Tom Brady had 505 yards passing, three touchdowns, no picks. You read me that stat line before the Super Bowl, and I say, oh, shit, it's a blowout. The Pats won. Because the Philly defense, I feel like it needed to be a lower-scoring game for them to have a chance and for Nick Foles. But the biggest surprise for me was that that Tom Brady had that stat line, and Philly still threw up a 40-burger on them and still won that game, and they did it behind Nick Foles. Man, I, like t- close second for my biggest surprise would have been that deep pass to Alshon Jeffrey. Just he uncorks it and lets it go, and Alshon comes down with it. I mean, I literally, I was like, oh shit, it's a game now. Like this is if this is how yeah. they're going to go, it's a game. I mean, Foles was this was his Flacco yeah. stretch, man. Like it was. Uh, he was he was great. You know, um, he was great in the conference championship game, and it was kind of it like, was. ah man, is he going to really be able to come back? And yeah. I mean, I think uh, I think it was Mike Renner that tweeted out like his. Uh, Foles's grades in these two games were higher than Wentz's. Anything that Wentz has done in his in his career so far, and that just I think speaks to how well he really played in these these last few games to kind of finish the deal for them. Man, how good of a coach is Jeff Fisher? I'll just leave it at that. Uh, So let's get to the Hall of Fame real quick. So of course, Terrell Owens is a Hall of Famer. Randy Moss is a Hall of Famer. Now those are two former Forty Niners. Remember, Randy Moss played for a year. With the 49ers, one whole year uh-huh. has a dislocated legend. That's right, has a dislocated finger to show for it from Colin Kaepernick. But there are two former 49ers that have not yet made it to the Hall of Fame, who probably at this point may never, just based on how often they've they've made it to the finals, and now are not not even in the finals. And I think Roger Craig now is in the in the uh, like the classics category or whatever the the old the people category senior, is, yeah, yeah, whatever it is. Yeah. Uh, so, who do you think is more deserving of a Hall of Fame bid at this point to get in, Roger Craig? Or Bryant Young? Uh, I would probably go Bryant Young. Um, I, I, I feel like he was a, a bet. He reached higher highs. Mm-hmm. You know, I think for me, um, you know, some, it's something that's kind of come up uh, when we've talked about Frank Gore in the past. And it's it's that I I kind of feel like in order to be a Hall like if I had a vote in it, I, I would be looking for guys that were, um, you know, among the best players at their position. Like I think it's important if you're going to be recognized as a Hall of Famer, that you were really, really good, even if that was, you know, and if your peak was, um, you know, maybe a little bit smaller, I think it depends on how high it was, but I think there, it's important to have that stretch of play where you were kind of like really dominant and, and one of the best, if not the best players at your position. I think, uh, it's easier to make that argument for Bryant young. I think he was really, really good, um, for a stretch and Craig was, you know, was great. He was, um, you know, had all the receiving stuff, a thousand thousand, all that, I don't know that like anybody was ever like, ah, Roger Craig's like the best running back in football right now. Or like in that conversation, like, I don't know. I just don't think that, that, uh, it's the hall of very good. You know, I think he would be in the hall of very good. Yeah. I, I probably lean BY as well, but I still have a soft spot in my heart for Roger Craig only because I think the thousand thousand means a bit more to me just because when you think of what he did as a multi-threat running back, he was, he was just years early. Right. Like he was the Marshall Falk before Marshall Falk sure. and, and thinking that he also came into the league as a fullback and made the Pro Bowl as a fullback. And I, I know the Pro Bowl, we rag on the Pro Bowl and now rightfully so. But back then, the Pro Bowl was a little different um, and voting for the Pro Bowl was different. And I think that making the Pro Bowl as a fullback and then making the transition to running back and then also going thousand thousand as a running back. Um, I, I do think that the Hall of Fame is not just for. Uh, I, I think there's an element to the Hall of Fame where being a pioneer at your position for something is also worth points. Yeah. Like being the quarterback who throws for 55% completion when everyone else was afraid of the forward pass. 
right? I, I think those kinds of things are are gonna they add to a case where maybe there wouldn't have been one if he were just another player in a different era. So yeah. Um, overall, I think though neither one of them are probably gonna get in. <laughs> There's actually Matt Mayoko yeah. has a, a really good podcast, which if you haven't listened to it yet, you should. Where he he's a member of the Hall of Fame voting committee. He has a 45-minute podcast where he talks about what the voting in the room is like. He talks to Clark Judge, who was categorically against Terrell Owens making the Hall of Fame, um, which is dumb. He's just an old fogey. Um, but but I think that it, it's an interesting discussion, so definitely go give it a listen. It, it's one of Matt Mayoko's probably better podcasts. But let's get to the free agent evaluation because we've, we spent almost the whole month evaluating the 49ers roster and we created a tiered model for what this looks like. Well, now we're going to apply this tiered model to figure out where it is that we need to upgrade. Of course, our tiered model led us to position groups that we were going to evaluate. And there's going to be four position groups that we're going to evaluate, the first of which is going to be cornerbacks. Cornerbacks, we feel, are a super important position in the game. When you talk about positional value, it's one of the top three uh, behind quarterback edge. And then uh, you know, you've know you got a cornerback, and you can debate whether edge or corner are going to be up there, what, who's two, who's three. But they're both in that conversation. So... What we're going to do this week is begin our free agent evaluation, and we're going to to break down the kind of different caliber of player that we're going to go after, both in terms of how much money they're going to cost, and then we're going to make a case for, and we're going to make a case against. So what we're going to do throughout this is create some categories for these players, figure out why you would go after that player, and then make a case for and, and see if they are a good fit for the 49ers. So I think one of the things that's important to, to talk about throughout the offseason, and, and you know, it, this is is something that comes up less during the season that we're not as worried about, but I think value is the key thing to be really focused on throughout the offseason. It comes into play in, in, I think, a lot of different ways, right? So there's not only uh, the positional value element, right, um, that, that you mentioned there, where there are flat out just positions on the field that matter more than other positions. And, and I think that's a reality. There's, you know, obviously some gray area in there depending on, um, the team and, and kind of the way that you're building things and and in what you're looking for within your schemes, like it may differ slightly from team to team, but I think there's a general kind of hierarchy there that uh, it, that is going to be pretty similar kind of when you look across the league. So I think that's important. I think value from a contract standpoint is important, right? What you're producing based uh, on on how much money that you're making is something that matters, you know, and when it when it comes to like long term team building stuff. So that's kind of how we're looking at a lot of this offseason stuff. And, and so when we look at this cornerback preview that we're going to get into, it's really focusing, okay, we're going to split guys into these tiers based on what we think they're ultimately going to uh, command on the open market, right? We're, we're talking about all these guys. Some of them may end up getting re-signed by their, their teams or franchise tagged or, or whatever. But if they hit the open market, kind of where do we expect them to land um, from a contract value standpoint? So I think that's kind of the... Uh, the starting point when you're really digging into these free agents. So because cost matters, we're dividing these players into three big buckets. The first bucket's going to be top dollar. These are going to be the, the most expensive, top-of-the-line kind of player. These are the guys that get signed right away as soon as free agency opens, and they're going to get signed for top dollar. The next bucket is going to be a mid-level player. This mid-level player is going to be someone who maybe gets the, the tail end of that first initial uh, initial rush or is still in that first initial rush but doesn't go for top dollar. This is where you can find sometimes uh, you know damaged goods or some value based on your positional fitter scheme. But these are your mid-level guys. 
And then you've got your bargain bin. These are going to be your super buy low candidates. You know, upside is definitely a requirement for this, but these are going to be the super cheap, you know, kind of second, maybe even third wave of free agent that you know you can get pretty cheap and isn't going to just cost you a lot of money. The key with the bargain bin, though, is that it's not just a bargain bin for a bargain bin. There needs to be some element of upside with this player because ultimately in the parlance of what we did over the last month, we're going to really be looking for tier two and tier three players. We're going to be looking for those core foundational players. I'm sorry, the foundational players, not the core players. <laughs> Hopefully you hope that they go to the core. To the core. Sure, but sure. Ultimately, you want the foundational players, those role players that you can build a roster around. Or you want the tier three player, that transitional player that's still very good, fits a specific role, but you know is only going to be around there for a couple of years, like Cassius Marsh. Cassius Marsh is a great example of a tier three player. You sign him for a two-year deal. Yeah. He's going to be there for two years. He's going to fill a gap with some hopefully upside production, and that's going to be that. Yeah, I think with the with the bargain players and and kind of going throughout, and this is going to apply to to all the different positions that we cover. But with bargain players, you know, we don't care about who's filling out the ninety man roster. Like, are the guys that get signed, you know, at the the, the bottom of the roster there uh, that are ultimately going to get cut? Like. Uh, once it comes training camp time, like, are they technically bargain players? Sure. But through the lens that we're kind of looking at is we want to try to identify guys that have the potential to become, uh, if not starters, like significant contributors, right? So, so guys that are going to compete for playing time. So even though they may be a bargain player, that's where the upside that you mentioned is, is kind of the key part there. We're, we're looking for players that are at a low point in their value, but they have something to be positive about, you know, I think like a Carlos Rogers situation, um, you know, from, from a few years back with the 49ers where he, you know, things just didn't work out when he was in Washington, but he was, uh, you know, a former first round pick, had some talent there, came to a better situation and was able to play a lot better um, when he got to San Francisco. So that's kind of the, the, the best case mold that you're looking at with those bargain guys, but there needs to be some semblance of upside there where you're, you're hoping that they can develop into a player that's actually seeing the field. So we're looking for foundational players or transitional players, and ultimately we're going to give you a case for and against each one of the players that we've identified in the three free agent buckets, top dollar, mid-level, and bargain players. So let's talk about the cornerbacks now, and let's talk about the positional profile that we've identified that we're going to go after. We think it makes sense to target outside cornerbacks. We're not going to go after slot guys for, for really the reason that we've got Kawan Williams and we've already re-signed him. But even if you don't have Kawan Williams, your failsafe is still Jimmy Ward and he can play slot cornerback as well. So we don't think we need to go out and spend a ton of money on a slot corner. We can, we're really needing to target that outside cornerback across from Akella Witherspoon. Size is definitely a consideration in the scheme, but it's not necessarily a strict criteria if the player is good. This is where you get into kind of the gray area when a player is just asked, is, is able to do what you ask them to do in a scheme. We're going to talk about this a bit when we get to Malcolm Butler, but just for now, just know that size is definitely a consideration when we're looking at cornerbacks. Age matters more in that top dollar area, and, and maybe in those mid-level and bargains, it's not going to be as much. You can get some of those transitional players. And ultimately, we think that you're going to want to load up on this position. So even though we're going to talk about a lot of these players, don't think that it needs to be one or the other unless you're talking about top dollar players. You're probably hopefully going to sign maybe a top dollar person in a bargain bin or maybe a couple mid-level guys in a bargain bin. These are going to be players that we think might work for the 49ers and their scheme, and we're going to bucket them based on value. So if that's the kind of profile that helps narrow down our scope and our range of focus, 
then who, David, are going to be our two top dollar guys that we think the Niners should go after? So I think this one, um, and, and you know, at the top too, it, I mean, it helps that this free agent class isn't isn't necessarily loaded with guys at the top there that that are that are going to be um, really commanding these big contracts. So I think it it comes down to Malcolm Butler and Tremaine Johnson. I think those are the two guys um, that are going to get big money come you know early early free agent period um, that really have a chance that that the teams that sign them are going to be banking on those guys coming in being number one cornerbacks and, and really making a significant difference in their secondary. So for those of you listening at home, uh, you may have given us the er, puppy dog ears because you didn't hear a specific name and that was Kyle Fuller. And we're only going to talk about Kyle Fuller briefly because we don't think that he's really a viable target or someone that we want to target for the Niners, especially in this top dollar area. He's probably going to command top dollar. Yeah, he more than likely is because of his pedigree, former first round pick, because he played a fairly good year last year. 49er yeah. fans know. I mean, he what, he ripped the ball out of Trent Taylor's hands. <laughs> so, you know, that's always going to be a mark against him. But but ultimately, David, why don't we feel like Kyle Fuller is a good fit for what the Niners are doing at the top dollar range? So I think it it really comes back to that value, right? So when you'll you'll see some, I think, similar similar concerns with some of the players we're going to talk about in the mid-level area where um, you know, he was uh, essentially a guy that played very poorly early on in his career, got a little bit better, you know, year two, then missed an entire year with injury. And then all of a sudden kind of broke out this past year and finally kind of put things together and had a career year um, as he's entering free agency. So I think that brings with it when you have that sort of limited sample of production um, that brings with it a lot more question marks that I don't think you're really um you know, I guess at least we're not what really uh, ready to to overlook that. I guess is is the the part when you're paying that top money, right? So teams, those are the kind of big mistakes that you see in free agency. Guys that don't have a great track record that that you're not really going to be confident that they can produce that top level, and then you give those guys top level money. Those are your big free agent mistakes, and I think he seems to fit that kind of profile. I'm not confident that he's going to be able to necessarily sustain what we saw from him this last year. Um, and, and really prove to be worthy of that big money. Because that top dollar range contract is going to be in that Norman Boye Gilmore area money. And that's going to be about 13 to $14 million a year, about 45% guaranteed money. And that puts them at about five and a half to seven and a half guaranteed per year. Like that's the kind of contract you're looking at for this top dollar area. And while someone's going to pay Kyle Fuller that, I don't think that his production thus far is to a place where I feel comfortable paying that money for Kyle Fuller. Yeah. Especially considering the fact that even this year, he was a little boom-busty in his coverage, where he had some really good games, and then he also gave up some deep touchdowns, and he gave up some things. And and that, that's not where I think that you want your you know $75 million cornerback to be. Yeah. So if we omit Kyle Fuller from this, and we look at, at Malcolm Butler and Tremaine Johnson, let's, make, let's start with Malcolm Butler, especially because he's been in the news recently. And of course, Pierre Garçon, who made reference to it at the top of the podcast, which that death row reference, by the way, I actually felt a little bad inside, like a little piece <laughs> of me died. I had to look up the reference. Me too, man. Uh, I, I had no idea. Like I had to read that, you know, the, I read the whole tweet yeah. through, and I was like, what? I don't understand. Yeah, being all up in the videos, yeah. I, I thought they was talking about Spygate. Like that's, that's honestly <laughs> oh where I was. God, yeah. I thought he was talking about Spygate and, and it turns out that he was referencing Suge Knight. And his diss of P. Diddy, I which mean, makes it even better. Hopefully he was trying to, I mean, levels to it. Hopefully he was getting on all of it. I'm Man. sure, you know, Pierre's a smart dude. East uh, Coast, West Coast, faux show. 
um, is what we're talking about here. Let's bring that. Let's not bring that beef back. I'm tired of rappers dying. Let's not do that. Yeah, let's not do that. Uh, so the case for Malcolm Butler. So number one, he's young and he has three years of proven production. He has a grade near 80 or more at the end of the last three seasons. This is, of course, his pro football focus grade. Last three years, 83, 90, and 79. And, of course, you know that a 90 grade, which is what he had last year, puts him in that elite category. So he has very good years, and he's been able to sustain elite production for an entire year. He had the seventh best grade in 2016 and the 13th best grade in 2015. And perhaps most importantly, he has experience taking on number one receiver successfully at the NFL level. He hasn't really had a bad year, right? Um, And I think that's kind of what you like to see from somebody that you're about to commit a lot of money to. Um, Even this year, I mean, this has been his worst year from a grading standpoint, but was still overall really good. I mean, it dipped just a little bit below that 80 mark there um, in the playoffs. Um, So yeah, these grades, that's, I guess, an important thing to call out there. This is um, the entire season. So it's not just regular season playoffs. only. So for the, the Patriots, obviously that's playoffs every year. Um, did not earn a grade for his, uh, bench sitting. <laughs> no, no, nothing, nothing for the Super Bowl impacted that one. Um, but yeah, so you have this sort of, um, you know, proven level of production, um, which again, I think is very important when you're giving guys this top money, you want to know, like it, you look at some of the guys last year, you know, just across the free agent class, um, guys like Clayus Campbell that got a lot of money, right? You know, you can Produce feel very confident. Yeah. yeah the, the free agent mistakes tend to be the guys that are those mid-level players that all of a sudden you convince yourself are going to be worth top. If they just get the opportunity to be the number, you know, it's the number two receiver. It's the number two receiver on Peyton Manning's team. Uh, exactly. Yeah. That, that leaves, you know, it's the, it's the number two pass rusher opposite a dominant pass rusher that leaves. And it's like, Oh, if he just gets the opportunity to be the number one guy, he's going to produce and, and you make a lot of mistakes when you go down that path. He has been the number one guy, right? He's, yeah. he's been there. Um, you know, he was an undrafted guy, so he didn't play a lot at that rookie year before the, the Super Bowl. Uh, against Seattle in that big moment. But since he's stepped on the field and has been playing meaningful reps, he's been playing at a very high level. So the other thing about Malcolm Butler that is really enticing is that he is a versatile corner. He comes from a system where he's asked to do a lot and play in a lot of different coverages. You you look at Bill Belichick's defense, and it is much like Saban's defense, where sure, they have coverages that they prefer, but by and large, they're going to play a lot of different coverages and they're asked to do a lot. The question, though, with Malcolm Butler is, well, can he play in a single high scheme? That's what the Niners run. They run cover three. They run a lot of single high. They run more zone than man, but definitely run some man. Well, Malcolm Butler has played in a single high, at least last year, played in a single high scheme 63% of the time. He played cover one 40%. He played cover three 23% of the time, and he had a good year, and this is not too far off of what the Patriots do just generally. He can play press. He can play off coverage. He can play both man and zone, and hopefully because of his wits, he can handle what we hope is going to be an increase in pattern matching that Sala will introduce next year. Well, I think we'll get to that maybe in scheme month. Sure. But but ultimately, we think that because of his versatility as a corner, he has done and can do a lot and has been able to do it at a high level. Yeah, I think this is my favorite thing, um, you know, about what he brings to the table is is you can really ask him to do just about anything. Um, you know, he's comfortably you, when you look at a lot of his positive plays and, and when he's making plays on the ball. He's doing it from all those different alignments, right? It's it's doing stuff in man and zone, um, which you know is going to require a lot of times requires a different skill set, right? In in man, 
a lot of times you're up at the line of scrimmage. You're a little bit more physical. You're playing from trail. So that means um, as a cornerback, your backs to the ball, right? Which is uh, a, a, a different sort of mindset to be in, to be able to react to what the receiver's doing. You're playing the receiver in a true way. You're watching yeah. his hips. You're looking at route combinations. You're, you're looking at what that person is doing. Whereas in off zone type stuff, you know, your, your eyes are kind of, you're trying to see a little bit of everything, right? You kind of got the receiver in, in part of your vision. You got the quarterback in part of your vision and everything's really in front of you if you're doing it right. And you can kind of react to what's going on there, break on the ball uh, and make plays. And you kind of see him do all of that stuff. And I think that ties in with, you know, I think there's, there's a, a really big element of mental process in there. I think he's a very smart player. You know, he's, um, he recognizes route combinations very well and is generally in the right spots. And then you pair very good ball skills with it, which I think is like kind of the next big thing with him. Um, you know, eight interceptions, 36 passes defensed over the last three seasons. Um, he just has a really good knack for finding the ball and making a play on it. And, and whether that's, um, you know, tracking balls down the field, you know, on more vertical routes or, or getting his hand in uh, and kind of making plays in the short and intermediate stuff like he finds a way to get his hands on the ball and, and make plays. And I think that's that's important. You know, you, you for, to be a top end guy and, and to be that number one corner, you need to make plays. You know, you need to get your hands on the ball. You need to create positive plays for your defense. Uh, and he's done that pretty consistently when he's been on the field. So the case against Malcolm Butler is that Bill Belichick is smarter than you or me. <laughs> or basically everyone, and that Bill Belichick sat him down in the Super Bowl because he's no longer got whatever he needs in order to cover well. Um, and, and that's largely because he is susceptible to the big play, especially when he's going up against speedier receivers because he doesn't have great top-end speed. He ran a 4.62 at his pro day, and most of his worst plays came against speedy wideouts where he was beat deep. Just De- Deshaun Jackson, Emmanuel Sanders, uh, or on crossers or deep balls. So if you're thinking of, okay, why not Malcolm Butler... Um, it's not because of his size. It's not because he's not six feet. Uh, it's because, for whatever reason, uh, some great football mind thought, oh, he's not good enough to play in the most important game when I need just a few snaps. Yeah, I mean, that's bizarre. Um, obviously, uh, a, a lot of a lot that we don't know about what's going on there with the Super Bowl and why he didn't play there. But um, I think when you look at his negative plays, that's what it tends to be, right, Is is situations where speed kind of hurts him. So when you when you pair kind of that lack of uh really really great top end speed with the um kind of willingness that he has in um to to really turn his head and find the ball, right? We talk about I think it with cornerback play sometimes where guys can be in good position but they don't always either uh, actually turn their head and try to find the ball or they're not very good at it, right? Once they, they kind of go to that finishing motion, um, it, they, they get lost a little bit, lose track of the receiver and give up some big plays. So when you have a guy that's really good in that area and wants to turn and find the ball, but kind of lacks that top end speed, that's going to, there's going to be some plays where he's just not catching up and, and he's trying to, to look back and make a play. And that gives enough separation for the receiver uh, to make something happen. And it's almost always in those situations, again, the crossing routes, like the deep crossing routes, um, you think of like the 49ers ran a ton of this year, right? Those type of plays. That Yankee or, concept, why cross? Yeah, or if you just get, you know, those guys that are you know, some some of the, the the burners, the Deshaun Jackson types that are just like taking off down the sideline. If he doesn't get a good uh, kind of jam to be able to disrupt them at the line of scrimmage, you know, those guys can kind of run by him a little bit. Um, but I think you, you deal with that. I think a good example of a, a good corner that has a little bit of that there with with 
is Patrick Peterson. Patrick Peterson, it's not because he ha- doesn't have to speed. Like, Patrick Peterson's a physical freak and, and can do pretty much anything. But he's also a guy that very good ball skills, um, you know, matches kind of what Butler was asked to do in terms of a difficulty of assignment type of thing. And therefore, he ends up being a guy that gives up some big plays here and there as well. Um, and I think when you're, as long as you're adding enough positive plays there, you can kind of live with that. You know, you can live with giving up, I think, a handful of big plays over the course of the season if he's creating a lot of positive stuff for your defense. Well, he's given up 17 touchdowns in the last three years on 285 targets. And just as you were saying, it's a combination of both being aggressive and going after the ball, um, but it's also a lack of, of great speed and recovery speed to prevent these type of plays if you get beat. Now, for context, Richard Sherman has given up 17 touchdowns, but he gave those up in seven years. One thing that's interesting here is that, of course, Malcolm Butler, we mentioned it earlier, he has experience shadowing a number one receiver. He did so in 10 games this season. When you're going up against the best, even if you're a very, very good corner, chances are you're going to probably give up a little bit more than you would if you're just locking down one side of the field. Right. So, you know, you, you've got to contextualize that number a little bit, but that if you are going to make against a case against Malcolm Butler, that's going to be on that list. Definitely. One thing to note about Malcolm Butler is this idea of scheme fit and kind of positional prototypes. We've been seeing this a lot on Twitter and a little bit on the Niners subreddit where everyone's saying, well, is he a positional fit because he's not six feet and he's not 195 pounds? Actually, he may be 195 pounds, yeah. um, but he's not tall. He's not long. And so he's not a scheme fit. There's a difference between scheme fit and positional prototype fit. A scheme fit, I think, is a player whose skills allow them to do everything you ask them to do in your scheme. So can he play press man? Can he play that deep number one if that's where you're going to pattern match? Can he play cover three? Can he play man if you're a man team zone if you're not a zone team? That's that's a little bit tied to your size and strength, but it's not wholly dependent on that. Then someone who's kind of a positional prototype is like, do they just have the measurables? Are they six foot? Are they 190 pounds? Can they run a 4440? And the better a player is, the grayer that positional prototype becomes. When you, when, you, when you hold hard and fast to those positional prototypes, you pass on Russell Wilson. And, and you've got a team that didn't pass on Russell Wilson because he was short as a holy get-out. And we hate the Seattle Seahawks for it, but there you go. Um, so I think that there's, there's a bit of a clarity thing that you've got to figure out there, which is what is a position prototype and what is a scheme fit. And I think that Malcolm Butler is very much a scheme fit even if he's not as, uh, even if he doesn't have the prototypical size that we're looking for in a corner, definitely. I mean, he plays when you when you watch him play, he plays a lot bigger than than that listed size, right? He he plays a lot more like a bigger physical cornerback. Again, we mentioned one of his biggest uh, the, the biggest downsides about him is that lack of top end speed that you would typically associate with kind of the smaller, quicker type of cornerbacks, right? Um, he plays a lot more. He's, he's, he's again a guy that's willing to get up and be physical at the line of scrimmage. Um, he's, he's good on contested balls. Like, um, he plays, you know, uh, in that same type of manner that you're really looking for these cornerbacks in the scheme to play. So I'm not, yeah, going to get terribly worried because he's, you know, I, what, I think he's listed at five eleven, five ten, five eleven, or something like he that. He probably clocked so, in at five ten. Sure. Mean, yeah. I was listed um, at five eight when I played football. <laughs> I am definitely not five eight. I'm not even five eight with cleats on. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so I, I mean, I think, um, again, it comes back to how do you play on the field, right? And I think there are just, there are some guys that uh, maybe are a little bit undersized, but their game plays a little bit bigger. Um, and you see the opposite every once in a while, right? You see some of the the, the big 
um, height weight type guys that that really aren't very physical and don't play to that size. And um, so I think, you know, while those are useful guidelines and, and definitely can help point you in the right direction, I mean, it's something that we used to really help us identify, um, you know, a lot of the possible guys um, that the 49ers might target in free agency. It's not something that you need to hold you know, hard and fast to that where if they don't, you just eliminate them outright. You have to kind of consider the whole picture, um, what their talent level is and, and whether they can do the things asked of them. All right. So let's talk about the next person. That's going to be Tremaine Johnson. So Tremaine Johnson, the case four is, well, he does have the prototypical size for the position. He is 6'2", 213. That's a big ass dude. <laughs> That's a big, big dude, especially considering he ran like a four, four. Or, oh, no, he's got another four, six guy. Yeah, we're, we're going to get to the yeah, he doesn't have great speed. Either, we're going to get to the four, four guys here in a minute. But he's a guy who defends the deep ball very, very, very well. He allowed only three receptions on targets traveling 20 or more yards in the air. Although it is worth noting that he did have a few plays where he was beat deep, but the play didn't result in a completion. So he excels in a Sherman-esque manner. He's not as much a product of great speed, but he knows how to use his length and the boundary to his advantage to limit completions. So he doesn't give up a ton of huge plays. He's given up just six touchdowns over the past three seasons on 266 targets. That's pretty good. Not bad. Yeah, that's really, really good. And of course, because of his height and weight, he is excellent in contested catch situations. He's allowed just two completions on 17 contested targets. Uh, It's 11.8%. That's the lowest completion percentage among corners with at least 15 contested targets. So, I mean, the, the, the case for Tremaine is that he is a big, strong dude who isn't going to get beat deep and can play the position with prototypical size and length. And, and that's kind of everything that you want out of, out of a corner in this scheme. Right. And as far as, you know, a lot of the stuff that we've talked about with the scheme, he, if you're just kind of going bare bones as to like, okay, what is the, what's the base requirement that we need to get out of the guys that are playing cornerback in the scheme? He checks those boxes and he checks the, I think the most important things, um, at a, at a really high level, right? Again, the, the deep ball and limiting that is something that's really important in this defensive scheme. And that's tied. I mean, you think most contested catches, those are, those are tend to be downfield plays. You can get contested catches, um, you know, on some of the short and intermediate stuff at times, but by and large contested stuff tends to be balls that hang in the air a little bit longer. And, and therefore both players kind of have an opportunity to make a play on it. And so those things are, are definitely tied together. Um, and then he does have some experience kind of tracking some of those top guys as well. They did have him move around a bit. He would kick down inside and, and play in the slot against some of the top guys that he faced against. I mean, he um, he followed around Dez, uh, Hopkins, Michael Thomas, Alshon Jeffrey, Marquise Lee, um, all of those guys on at least 60% of their routes in, in the games that they faced off in. So, um, and, you know, and again, it was kind of, which I think is where he's at. He was very solid in all of those games. He, um, he, I, I don't think you would say that he shut any of those guys down. You know, he wasn't uh, erasing them from the game by any stretch, um, but he didn't give up those big plays, right? He didn't allow a touchdown to any one of those guys either. Um, so I think that's kind of where he's at is, is he's not going to give up a ton of big plays. You know, he fits the scheme well, um, but I don't know that he has a, a ton of upside beyond that. So the case against Tremaine Johnson is that while he does indeed limit the really awful plays, he's got a lot of negative snaps. And that's mostly because he doesn't have great feet or change of direction. He struggles defending the short and intermediate stuff a lot of times because of it. And he struggles in off coverage. Um, And and so when you when you think about passes targeting him in coverage that have resulted a first down or touchdown, he's allowed 44.9 percent of passes targeting him that that have resulted in a first down or touchdown. That's the fourth worst 
among corners who were targeted at least 65 times. Then the worst Niner fans are familiar with goes by the name of Dante Johnson. And I mean, regardless of the number of drinking game rules we have for this dude, I'm glad that he's no longer a Niner because he just wasn't a good corner in this scheme. Uh, when you compare him to Malcolm Butler, Malcolm Butler was right around league average last year, 37.1%. The NFL average was 35.7%. So you think of Tremaine Johnson, he was exceptionally poor at preventing first downs and touchdowns. <laughs> yeah, well, so what? So we we look at, um, you know, com- kind of comparing these two players, right? Malcolm Butler was a guy, when we, we look at the touchdown totals, right, gave up higher percentage of touchdowns, which obviously that's important. You, you know, main goal as a defense is keep points off. Keep points off the board. Um, and, and so that's what you're looking at. So he's, you know, is a little bit more prone to giving up some of those really big plays. But Tremaine Johnson gives up a lot of the little stuff. So he takes away those deep plays um, and, and limits the touchdowns, which is great. But nearly half of the passes that targeted him moved the chains, right? So you're still, you know, it, you know. I guess ultimately as a defense, if you had to have one, you know, would you rather have the guy you give it up yeah. a little, just first downs and hope you can kind of tighten things up the red zone? Sure, but but when you're allowing the offense to continuously kind of move the ball downfield. That's not great, um, you know, and that's not something that you see from top corners either. So, again, you mentioned Butler was was right around league average, and, and you see a few of the the top guys that hover around league average, and then the, the guys that rank best in this particular metric. So, again, preventing first downs or touchdowns um, when, when they're targeting coverage, those guys are in the 20%, 20, low 30%. Like, I think Casey Hayward was, like, right at 30% or something like that. So... You know, they're they're not only preventing completions, but they're preventing completions that move the chains. Uh, and I think that's something that's important. And he hasn't been as good in that area. He gives up too much stuff underneath. Ultimately, ultimately, Tremaine Johnson has really never produced at a top end level. His rookie year, he rated out fairly OK, 80.3. But then he had two years below 60 in his pro football focus grade. Um, and then he's kind of rebounded with several years where he's hovered around that 80 range. And if you're going to play, if you're going to pay a player top end money, you want to be confident that they're capable of top-end production. And when we compare these two players, then you really see that the only person who has performed at a high level consistently over nearly their entire career, especially while they were playing, was Malcolm Butler. And I think the argument here at the end of this year was that, well, he didn't have a, a great 2017. Well, okay, 2017 was his worst year, and that was about as good as Jermaine Johnson in his best year. And so the, the, the high of Malcolm Butler is so high, and he's such a smart player. And man, man, uh, David sent me this clip earlier this week where he was playing a you know single high defense. And he was playing off the receiver a little bit. And just the way that he hit the back pedal, shifted his hips, and broke back towards the sideline, um, he executed a speed turn and was in position to break up the pass, was so fluid and so great. You just don't see those plays from Tremaine Johnson. You just don't. Yeah. And, and so I think ultimately... I would really be fine if they signed either one. I think either one would be a definite upgrade. Sure. But if I have to put my hat on one, it's going to be Malcolm Butler. Yeah, I think it comes back to that value thing, right? Um, I, I want to feel like I'm going to get, or at least have an opportunity to get that top-end production, right? You're, you, you know, the market's going to dictate that whatever the 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 most talented players that happen to come out in that class, like they're just going to be the most paid play, like the highest paid players. Yeah. And like, that's just kind of how it works. And so it's not always going to be a case where the best players in the league are making the most money. It just depends on who was the last one to sign their contract, essentially. It's right? all about timing, man. But 
when you give guys like that level of contract, again, you're, you're kind of expecting that level of production. I think that's important. It's, it's tough to pay guys at the top of their position from a cap standpoint and not get that production, right. To get, to get basically just a little above average play or worse. Um, it, yeah. it isn't what you're looking for. So ultimately we would say if you're going to sign one of these two guys, and obviously if they signed both of them, that would be ridiculous. But <laughs> if they signed one of them, we ultimately think that Malcolm Butler is the guy. We do think he's a scheme fit. We think that elite production matters. And the case against is not so much so that it's going to be uh, enough to kind of dissuade us from, from going that way. Now let's get to the mid-level tier because the mid-level tier is the one that I think it might be the most kind of interesting only because it, either you miss out on those top guys or you just don't target them. The market gets too rich and you go after these mid-level guys. The two mid-level corners that we've identified that could be great fits for the 49ers are Prince Amukamara and Rashawn Melvin. So when we think about the contract you're going to be looking at in this tier, we're looking at a mid-range kind of Brent Grimes-ish contract. One to three years, six to seven million a year. About 30 to 50% guaranteed, depending. You're looking at about one and a half to four million dollars guaranteed per year. So quite a bit cheaper than what you were looking at before. You're looking at about a half of the cost right. of that top tier guy. And when you look at someone like Prince of Mukamar and Rashar Mel- and Rashawn Melvin, the case for and the case against, I mean, these could be some solid transitional players that end up filling a role like a Patrick Robinson did for Philadelphia. Right. I think with Prince, um, that's a guy that you feel it's it's a high floor, low ceiling type of player, right? You you can feel, I think, pretty confident in knowing what he is at this point of his career. And that's a very solid player. You look at his grades, um, you know, it recently across the last three years. And it's again, it's hovering in that kind of like high 70, um, just merely cracking um, 80 type of range. He's not going to be a guy that necessarily um, makes a ton of plays on the ball. You know, he's not going to go out there and, and make a, a ton of huge plays for your defense, but he's not going to give up a lot of plays, right? So I think he's somebody, once you get to these mid-level guys, you know, you're looking for either, you know, you're hoping what? maybe you strike it rich and, and they develop into something more. Like Patrick Robinson. But for the most part, you know, you're you're looking for kind of more of a stopgap, right? Okay, this is somebody that we know that we can get kind of reliable competent play he's going to be a massive upgrade over somebody like yeah. Dante Johnson um but he's not you know we don't have to break the bank on him he's not going to um you know be shoe in as our number one cornerback you know we're, but he gives us time to kind of find that player and, it's it's and the words find a better fit. That, it's the words that you're comfortable with these players yeah. all have warts, but which ones am I most comfortable with which ones am I okay that I can either mask or do whatever in the system and, and I mean I think the the biggest thing for me is that his name is Prince <laughs> and he immediately becomes a candidate, uh, probably a leading candidate for the captain of the all-name team, unless we draft like Equinemia St. Brown, which would be balls. You have no <laughs> idea how excited I am for Equinemia St. Brown. But he's got solid production, Prince of Mukamara, solid production. He reached his peak this year, which is interesting. I mean, his, his peak grade, 81.2, was this year. He was top 10 in both yards per cover snap and cover snaps per target. So... On a per-snap basis, he performed really, really well, and we know that he can pattern match since he studied under, since he studied under, of course, Lord Fangio, who runs a cover two pattern match more often than not. But if we're going to introduce more pattern match concepts next year, we know that he's got the mental processing to handle those things and handle them well. Yeah. Yeah. So again, I think really it comes down to him safe, reliable, know what you're getting from him. 
So the case against durability. He's only played 16 games once in his entire career, and he doesn't have the best ball skills. He has one pick last three seasons. Not good, not great. But ultimately, and he's, of course, a little on the older side. He's 29 years old. But when you think about someone who's a little on the older side who can be that transitional player, that tier three player that's going to give you a stopgap for you know two or three years, then this is probably one of the better options, especially if you end up drafting a corner in the first round. You could easily see you know, an Akella Witherspoon situation where that rookie corner doesn't start right away. Amukamara is in there starting, and then eventually he, you know, seeds or give way or gives way or whatever, especially, you know, if that corner takes a bit more time to learn a transition, or if it's a corner that plays that played multiple positions or something like that. Um, this that's the area I'd like to see Prince in. Yeah, I think that makes sense. Um the the next guy I think is the one in this whole list that I'm kind of most intrigued by. Um, you know, after getting a chance to kind of go through and and watch a lot of their tape, um, you know, over the course of this week. Rashawn Melvin is somebody that uh, that it's interesting. And I think going back, you know, kind of alluded to it with the Kyle Fuller talk. And he has, uh, you know, I think a similar sort of uh, career arc so far. And in that, you know, started out he, for him, it was less playing poorly early on and more wasn't playing at all. You know, he's an undrafted guy, so he wasn't getting those opportunities um, necessarily right away. And so he didn't have a lot of snaps in his first few years. You know, first three seasons, really limited in that regard. Finally got a chance, um, you know, in year four, which was two years ago, and played played okay, right? Was kind of a, about average, was was doing all right, um, and then broke out this year and kind of had uh, the career year entering free agency. Um, so you see that similar sort of kind of peak at the right time. But I think because of, of where he, again, the pedigree stuff and being an undrafted guy and um, also dealing with injury a little bit. And so this peak year wasn't a full season for him. It was, um, you know, a little bit closer to half a season. I think he played like around 550 snaps this year. Um, so we didn't get it's to like see half it. a season for DeForest Buckner. Right. You, you didn't get to see it for the full stretch. So um, there's definitely a lot of the same question marks there. But I think that becomes more palatable with the lower price tag and, and you yeah, start cause you're not paying top dollar. You're not paying $72 million overall for yeah. this player. And so he's kind of, uh, I think the opposite of, of Amukamara in that he's more of a high ceiling, low floor type of guy. There's a lot of variance that could be in play there because you don't have the large sample size. You're not feeling as confident that he's going to be able to continue that production, right? He may just kind of fall off a cliff and go back to being, um, you know, kind of nothing essentially just a guy. But if I'm going to pay for something, I'm going to pay for athleticism. Because that, sure. that's the kind of guy that you want. Like, okay, he's got the athlete figured out. Let's see if he can do everything else. And he is a plus athlete. He ran a 4440, 38-inch vertical. He's 6'2", weighs 192 pounds. He has that prototypical size that you want in the scheme. And that athleticism is something that, translate to the, that translates to the field. He's not a player where that doesn't pop off tape. Yeah, I mean, it was very... You look at the speed especially. And, and again, Butler, Tremaine Johnson not super fast guys, right? So you see when they're in situations where they have to track a receiver across the field on kind of some of those deep crossing routes or something like that, and you see them kind of lag behind a little bit. It's 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 tough for them to be able to keep up against some speedier receivers. You don't see that um, with, with Melvin All. He's got that extra, that extra gear to be able to track those guys. Um, and so that was something that was very noticeable. And he is, again, ball skills, I think, are important. Um, when, when you're looking at cornerback, you need guys that can make plays on the back end there. Um, sorry, I, I almost <laughs> said I, I'm debating whether or not I should say you keep saying ball skills are really important. I was like, yeah, yeah, they are, buddy. <laughs> um, Just saying. So this year, again, we're talking limited production, a little, little more than half, um, half a, a season worth of sample size, but 
had three interceptions and 10 passes defensed in just 55 targets. That's a stupid um, rate. So you look <laughs> at, so PFF uh, kind of combines that uh, in, in terms of like a rate in which you're making plays in the ball, calls that playmaker index. Um, and so 23.4% uh, or 0.6%, excuse me, of the passes that went his direction, he was able to get a hand on the ball. Um, the only player that had at least the 55 targets that he had uh, that beat that was Casey Hayward, who was, you know, basically the best, the best corner in football, in football. this year. Um, and, and so again, it's a product of, of those physical tools um, really coming together and, and, and showing up on the field, right. Showing up on the tape. He's able to use the length that he's got from that six, two frame, um, you know, use the speed to be able to match receivers and man coverage and be in position to make plays on the ball. All that stuff um, I think shows up. I think he's, uh, again, press coverage is important. We're going to talk about that whenever we're talking about cornerbacks in the scheme. He's he's really good in that regard. I think most of his best plays came from press man coverage this season. Um, just, and he's also a, yeah. sol- he's a solid run defender. So he had 111 plus run defense snaps in 2017, which means that his, his grade was positive in 111 run defense snaps in 2017, which is really, really good. He was 21st in run stop percentage. So this is someone who knows how to use his body well. He's not someone who plays smaller than his frame. He's 6'2", 196. He's 28 years old. He's someone who I think, if you're looking for someone who you're swinging for, not necessarily swinging for the fences, but getting them on the upswing of their career arc, this is that player who we could target and get for not a ton of money. When you think about the kind of contract we're looking at, I mean, you're looking at like a two, three-year deal at six to $7 million a year, you know, I mean, yeah. it's been a long time since I was in a math class, but that's like 21 million <laughs> and that's a lot less than 75 or 80 mil. Yeah, I think it's just uh, again, it, this is where it comes back to the value. And I think there's a lot of people that may come out and be like, OK, you said a lot of the same things about Cal Fuller and we think he's a better player, right? He was the first round pick. Why not go after the more talented guy? Um, and I think that I mean, you, you got to You got to figure what they're making, right? It all it all matters if you can get um, you know, even if you say, okay, I'm going to concede that Rashawn Mel, Rashawn Melvin isn't as good of a player as Kyle Fuller right now, but is that gap as big as the difference in contract that they're about to get? Like, absolutely not. Uh, you know, he's going to, he's going to give you probably 80, 90% of what you're getting production wise. Yeah. Um, based on what we've seen so far, I think with some upside to even kind of match or exceed that, um, and, and he's going to cost you a fraction. And, so. the, and the other argument you hear is, well, the Niners don't have to worry about money. They've got a hundred and some odd plus million dollars in cap space and, and they can spend that wherever they want. And, and what I would say to re- in return is I would say, OK, sure. But how do you get into salary cap hell, which we've been yeah. before, right? You get there by making dumb decisions with contracts and just paying top dollar to players where there is a cheaper, better option available. Just because you have a ton of money doesn't mean you have to spend all of it. You can still be very, very smart with your money. And set yourself up to never box yourself out of acquiring a player that you may need for a stretch run. And this, I think, is the important piece is that we have a ton of money now. But when we sign Jimmy Garoppolo and we will sign Jimmy Garoppolo, you're going to take a huge chunk out of that. And once you sign another couple of players, you've got people that you want to extend yourself. Once we extend DeForest Buckner, there's going to be another chunk of change there. These are the things that you've got to think about. You can't just think about what's going to happen today. You've got to think about what's going to happen in the next two, three, four, and potentially five years because, yes, the cap goes up, but it's not going to go up such that you can just throw $70 million at players and say, well, we can get out of it if we need to because sometimes (laughs) you can't. There's a difference between being aggressive and being reckless, I think. And and when you start just 
handing out huge contracts to players that have not shown that they're willing or that they're able to produce it, it remotely that level that's being reckless. That's just saying we're going to try to throw money at a problem and hope it works, hopes it work out. Um, I, I think you you have to, it's important to be aggressive. You know, you want to use, you don't want to let that cap space go to waste. And again, we mentioned a, a window here, I think, of about two, three years before you really have to worry about extending a lot of your own players where you do have the ability to be aggressive and go out and spend a little bit more in free agency than you would normally. But you still want to be smart about the, the players that you're targeting there. So the case against Rashawn Melvin is that he is indeed a relative unknown. He's only seen significant snaps over the last two years, limited playing time, uh, and you know he's peaking now, so it could be uh, it could be fool's gold. He struggled a bit against some of the more crafty route runners. Has a few snaps against Garcon, where Garcon just completely owns him at the line of scrimmage because that's what Garcon does, and and so he gave up some easy wide open catches. Had a rough game against Antonio Brown. And Eric Decker got the better of him a little bit. So when you're looking at how he's performed against some of these top-end guys, you're like, okay, well, maybe there's there's some concern there. And and he is going to be that high-risk, high-reward player where it's like, well, you know, he could develop into something awesome, but he could also be just, you know, another guy that's just a guy. Yeah. And and especially if you're going to... And, and this is where that value play comes in. But, of course, he is from Northern Illinois, <laughs> which means that he can be reunited with Jimmy Ward. Let's just recreate the Northern Illinois backfield because why why wouldn't you want a directional school backfield yeah of course that sounds like the 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 way that you build a super bowl champion right there hey that's what i'm talking Um, about so let's get to the bargain bin the bargain bin these are the players again there has to be upside but these are the players that are going to be cheap as balls cheap as all holy get out they're not going to be sought after or coveted but for one reason or another they could be a player that ends up producing well in san francisco and the number one person on this list is going to be one that you've probably already thought of, and that's going to be Byron Maxwell. And I feel like a lot of people probably would react negatively to that name and, and say, like, oh, my God, why would we ever sign Byron Maxwell? Um, I'm all for it, especially if you can get him at the contract size that you're probably going to get here, which is like a one or maybe two year deal. But it's more than likely going to be like a one year prove it deal yeah. for like a mil and a half. Yeah, I mean, you're not looking at a, a lot of guaranteed money with these guys. And and again, if, if somebody's stupid enough to go and give Byron Maxwell like a huge contract again, like you say, yeah, sure, go do that. And, and we're not going to worry about it. Miami's but, already done that. <laughs> yeah, Miami, I don't think would make the exact same mistake on the same player twice. But who who knows? Huh. Um, it, it's so I think you look you're, you're making the case for right. And it's when he's been productive because he's been very up and down. Right. He, he had he did have a good year in Miami and then he played so poorly this year in Miami that he got benched and then ultimately cut um, when he's played well. It's been in Seattle and it's been in the scheme that San Francisco is running um, now in Seattle. And this was kind of the danger when he was coming out and hitting free agency the first time around. You have a lot of talented players in Seattle, right? And so, uh, you know, one could argue that 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 other cornerback spot opposite of Richard Sherman uh, is kind of an easy spot because you got a hell of a lot of help. You got you got a, a basically an all star cast of of, yeah. uh, of DBs. You've got Bobby Wagner helping you out underneath. Um, I mean, they have a lot of talented guys. You have a good pass rush getting after the quarterback there, so you're not um, really staying in coverage for an insane period of time. So yeah, there's a lot of benefits to playing. Uh, in Seattle or has been for the past, you know, several seasons. Um, so you, you do have to consider that. But again, the 49ers running a similar scheme. That's when he's produced at a high level and you're hitting him on a low point, right? He again, he was just cut. You're buying um, low. You're, you're, you're hoping that uh, you can take a talented player that has produced at a, a relatively high level in the past 
in an environment that is similar to the one that you're trying to kind of uh, create in San Francisco right now. Um, and you see what happens. And and there's almost no ri- the, the reason why this is fine and you don't really worry about this type of move is there's no risk. Like if you sign him for a one year deal or two year deal and you don't have a lot of uh, guaranteed money in there and it doesn't work out then like who cares so, uh, you, you cut him and you move on and, and you're no worse off for it so um i think that it's worth taking a chance on these type of players um in that bargain area right yep so if you're looking for a case against it's that well and david mentioned it here but you, he needs to suckle at the carol teat in order to succeed uh yes that's a visual that you need it in your head right now uh so he can also be insubordinate he apparently got sat in Miami because he just didn't call the defenses or he didn't play the defenses that his coaches called. So they were playing, they were calling press man and he was like, no, nah, I'm going to play off. And he was like seven or eight yards off the ball. And they were like, no, no, you can't do that. And he's like, I don't care. I'm Byron Maxwell. Make my own rules. And so they sat him down. I mean, uh, sure. And yeah, I mean, I would expect that a coach would do that, but it, <laughs> I guess Bill Belichick would have sat him in a Super Bowl too. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and he doesn't play special oh teams. At least he hasn't played special teams in Seattle and, and Miami. So he and that's, you know, definitely a risk when you're thinking of like your third and fourth corner. If he's not going to be a starter, you probably want that guy to play special teams. And so if he's not going to, then that presents itself a problem. But the other player, I think, in this bargain bin is one that's a bit more interesting, at least to me, than Byron Maxwell. And that's going to be Ross Cockrell. And it's not just because of his name, but <laughs> I, you, it's, you know the weight of my heart, David. We need someone to carry on you the, know, Johnson the, the Johnson rule. Yeah, and here. what better than Cock? What better <laughs> replacement for Johnson than Cock, Rel? <laughs> um, so I think, uh, I think when you look on the field with old uh, Mr. Cock, um, I think it's, it's kind of a, a poor man's Prince of Mukamara situation where... Um, so he's a guy, I think the reason he ultimately lands in this bargain bin area is because he's bounced around a little bit, right? He's, um, uh, moved on. I think his best season was in Pittsburgh. He spent two, the middle two years of his four year career, uh, in Pittsburgh played relatively well there two years ago, went to the, the giants, um, this past season again, played fairly well. He's just been kind of a solid player, um, but also like Prince Mukamara is not a guy that's going to make a ton of plays on the ball. You're not going to get a ton of positive plays. You're also not going to get a ton of negative plays, right? He's just kind of a solid presence. There. He's just that's, there. He's He's been there. He's not Dante Johnson. You're not worrying about him getting torched every single play, um, but he's not your number one guy, right? So he's... So I think when you start looking at some of these other players and, and you know, with Maxwell, it's you're, you're trying to take a chance on a guy that has that shown a little bit higher level play. I think Maxwell's highs have been higher than, um, you know, Cockrell's, Cockrell's have been. Yeah. Um, which, man, that is just a, a fun sentence to say. Um, <laughs> and, and so I think, yeah, he's a little bit of, uh, you know, the safer, low ceiling, lower floor or higher floor type of guy um, in this this range. Um that you're getting and I think you come when you're looking at these players, you're either just um, saying that we're going to pick up a couple of them and see if anything works out. Right. Because they're they're cheap and we can probably get rid of them um, fairly easily if we need to. But this is also like, uh, I think, uh, a route that you can take in free agency if you're just not in love with the top guys. I think this is, again, a free agent class at the top. I, I really do like Malcolm Butler. I think he's far and away. Um, the top option in this class, but he's not like a, a transcendent. He's not a, an AJ Bouye that's about to go and, right. and kind of remake your defense. He's not on that 
Jalen Ramsey level. So that's my question um, to you. It, my question to you is we, we talked about the players in these different categories and, and we, we've made it very clear that we prefer Malcolm Butler at that top dollar area. But the mid-level guys are still pretty interesting. Rashawn Melvin, Prince of Mukamara. You can get both of those for the same price or maybe even sure. less than you could get Malcolm Butler. And we've talked many a time on this podcast about how you want to increase your chances of hitting. And, and that seems like that, that would make sense to, to sign these two mid-level guys before you go and pay a bunch of money to Malcolm Butler. So which strategy would you rather the Niners pursue? Would you rather they sign Malcolm Butler at the top end and then maybe draft a corner or maybe draft a bargain bin guy as, as a backup to kind of fill out the, the other cornerback slots that we so desperately need? Or would you rather them sign two mid-level guys or, you know, a mid-level guy and, and, and you know, a couple bottom guys and then draft a corner knowing that you've got the draft kind of in your back pocket? What's the strategy that you would prefer? You know, I think, I think as of right now, I would lean maybe ever so slightly to signing Butler. Um, I do think that could change, though, once we go. So, I, I mean, I, we're, we're going to get to, again, these other positions here. Um, and I think, it, you know, those those position groups haven't spent a lot of time on yet. And I think if all of a sudden, because you're not going to be able to go out at every single one of these positions and, and get a top the, yeah. dollar guy, yeah. right? You're, you're not going to be able to, or at least you shouldn't. Um, and, and maybe they could probably fit it in right now if they wanted to. But I think that would be, uh, kind of a poor way to go about it, but you're you're not going to go and sign, you know, kind of a top guy at every single one of these positions. So maybe once we get through the other positions and have a a, a better feel for what's going to be there and kind of what those position groups are like as a whole, um, and, and where the value can really be found there, maybe that changes a little bit. And you say, okay, I would rather spend my top end money at some of these other positions grab a few guys that I think can fill in, you know, be those transitional players short term and really hope to get my number one cornerback in the draft, right? That may ultimately be the scenario when we kind of finish up these previews. But I think right now, just looking solely at the cornerback class, I think I would lean ever so slightly to go uh, and just grabbing Butler. Yeah, I I honestly, a big part of it depends on whether or not certain edge people are available because I would love... I, I think right now where I am is I would lean ever so slightly going after the mid-level guys. Yeah. I, that, that's kind of where I would lean, knowing that the knowing that what the draft class looks like near the 9-10 area if everyone loses their mind and goes after all the white quarterbacks. And you've got, you know, Bradley Chubb who's gone and you've got a couple of those players. I think that I, I kind of lean going towards drafting a a, a corner and getting some mid-level guys and just letting them all fight over the job. Um, and, and again, and, I, and I'm talking like 50 and a half, 49 and a half percent is where I lean. Um, only yeah. because, you know, I'm, 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 I'm feeling a bit, you know, kind of risk takery with the, the Rashawn Melvins of the world, I think, and the Prince of Mukamaras. And I think that they can be good for two, three years. And, and then you've got your draft. Yeah. You know, I, your think, draft I mean, Melvin, I think to me is the, the interesting one there. Again, I think he has the most upside of, of those yeah. guys, right. That's that, that are more unproven. Right. Um, I, I don't know that you're expecting him to be like, I don't think the most likely outcome with him is that he becomes even a Malcolm Butler level right. player. Right? right. But I think it's there. Like that's, that is a possibility I think with him based on, you know, the limited tape that we do have of him. Yeah. I, I think it's, it's definitely interesting because this, this corner class is good. I mean, you've got a couple of really good players at the top of, of this 
free agent cornerback class, but they're not. You're right. You said earlier they're not transcendent. They're they're, they're, no, they're no Patrick Peterson. It's not like he's free, or it's not like AJ yeah. Boye is free. Um, those those people I think would would rank above any of these corners, and so that's where I'm like, if you're going to pay top dollar, I'd rather maybe go near the middle um, and and pick up that Amukamara and Melvin. Yeah, it's tough. I mean, I think it it, it really depends really um, with those numbers because I am a little worried in general. Like, I don't like the middle class contracts, generally. Yeah, right. Like the, those type of players, like the that are they're, they're making probably more than they should, and they're not really you know. I don't know. It's just a weird area to be in. I almost it's think it's more that I guaranteed prefer, money um, as a percentage of their total contract. Yeah, I just don't like having. I think in general, like a lot of those type of players. Like, I would rather um have you know obviously you everybody wants the top guys right that you want to have players that that are uh, among the best players of their position but i think absent that i go you know i'd rather take a bunch of the the lower guys right a bunch of the lower guys and not have to mess and then and then kind of hope that you can develop one of them and, and hope that one of them pans out take a little bit more risk there i think that ultimately it seems to be like a more sound from a cap perspective, I mean, the cap's a little bit different now. So, you know, maybe you can afford more of those middle class players than um, than you used to be able to. But I just know that, like, that's kind of an area where teams have gotten theirself, themselves in trouble where they they spend a lot on the middle class players. And so they they have a lot of guys that are kind of there. They're, they got some guaranteed money in their contracts, right? You can't really super easily get out of them. But they're not, you know, make they're not difference makers, right? Yeah. They're not coming in there and kind of revamping your defense or, or you know, helping that position group out a ton. I sure, I think you know, I would still be really, really excited if we drafted, or not drafted, but if we signed uh, Malcolm Butler, um, or oh, even, yeah, or be, even Tremaine Johnson. Even, I think it'd yeah. be like, I mean, and, and I feel like, especially if the team targets this position of need with free agents and the draft, it can immediately turn into a strength. And and that's what I think the the Eagles showed us this year with their Super Bowls. Like you, if you take a position of need and you just stack it with players, you're gonna figure it out and you're gonna get and you're gonna get production. And that's what I think the Niners should do. I think mean, they should go after a bunch of players, stack that position, draft even more players, and then figure it out. Because I, I feel like the Niners could make a legit playoff run. Um, next or, or make it to the playoffs. I'll make a play. Yeah, I mean, run. you need, uh, you need pass defense. I mean, you do. pass defense is, is kind of where it's at. It's, it's the next most important thing after your quarterback, quarterback. Your passing game. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, that's something that just ask Blake Bortles, be the, the primary focus. Absolutely. So that does it for this week's edition of the better rivals podcast. We're going to be doing a free agent positional preview where we are highlighting t- players that we think the Niners should target over the course of the next month. Next week, it's going to be pass catchers, not just wide receivers, but players that we think could help catch the gorgeous and amazing footballs that Jimmy Garoppolo, Jimmy GQ is going to be throwing at people. February 21st, we're going to be talking about edge players and players where we, where we think the Niners should target. We try to do that closer to the franchise tag area, just in case a couple of Cowboys players get franchised. Yeah, I think um, the... I think the- 10th february 10th if i remember right is yep. the first day that they can be tagged so yeah hopefully things will a settle a little, little bit later we should have a better idea yep. of um you know who's actually going to be available and then february 28th we're going to hit the interior of the offensive line and this is all going to be focusing on free agent players that are available for the 49ers to sign once we're done with free agency then we're going to go back and go after draft players and draft eligible players that we think the Niners should target. So we're going to target free agency. We're going to also recap free agency by the time we get to March and then also cover the uh, draft 
and the draftable players. I feel like shit when people tweet it, when they tweet at me, like, what do you think of this player? I'm like, I don't know. Haven't watched film yet. Get back to me in three weeks. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of a situation. Um, you know, we, we're we not as into the draft. You know, we're there, there are a lot of guys that the draft is their primary focus. Even during the NFL season, right, they're more yeah. focused on the college season, have a much firmer grasp of uh, kind of the draft class as a whole and where players are going to fall and all that stuff. Um, we tend to find ourselves just with how our schedules go in, in catch-up mode and that kind of last you know, month, month and a half really before the draft is, is really when that becomes our primary focus there. So, um, yeah, give it, give it some time. We'll get give it, there. give it a bit of time, but thanks again for tuning in this week for our first of four free agent previews. And as always go Niners. I'm Karis Fisher. I want to tell you about another podcast you should check out. It's called Recode Decode. Every week I talk to tech and media's key players about how they're changing our world. I interview tech executives like Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg, political figures like Hillary Clinton, and media personalities like John Carreyou, who literally wrote the book on Theranos. Once again, the name of the show is Recode Decode, hosted by me, Kara Swisher. You can find it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to the show. See you there.